Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm, I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Before we start, as usual, thank you very much to our Patreon supporters, both Patreon supporters of the Cosmic Shambles Network overall and those who support the Book Shambles Patreon podcast or the listeners out there who support both. As you've probably heard Robin mention on the show in the last few weeks or on Twitter or wherever, as everything drags on and on and on and on and on, And there continues to be no live work for us and performers and producers and directors up and down the country. Patreon is really the thing that's keeping us all going and the podcast going at the moment. Around about 2 to 3% of people who listen to the Book Shambles podcast or watch one of our live streams or the Science Shambles podcast or read our blog, stuff like that, uh, are also Patreon members. If we could get that up to just... 5% during this time where we have no live work, that will really not only help us out, but also mean that we can keep putting out all of the stuff that we do and that you enjoy, or hopefully enjoy. I don't want to presume you might be hate listening to this, although that would be a very odd decision. Anyway, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the podcast, get extended episodes each and every week, plus get access to exclusive series like an uncanny hour and uh, at the behind the scenes levels you can sometimes watch the live recordings that we do of book shambles and various other interviews and podcasts and if you can't uh, subscribe through patreon we understand times are tough for lots of people Uh, simply spreading the word of the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network and rating and reviewing five stars on Apple Podcasts. All that is free and helps us out as well. And obviously there's still lots of free content that we do through Cosmic Shambles as well. All the blogs, the Book Shambles podcast, Science Shambles podcast, Science Shambles live stream, uh, the virtual book launch for Dean Burnett's new book, uh, which was a couple of days ago. That's still up on the YouTube channel to check out. Dean will be on the podcast soon as well. Anywho, enough waffle. Uh, let's get on to this week's conversation. Robin and Josie joined by friend of Cosmic Shambles, Nikesh Shukla, to chat about his new book, his memoir, Brown Baby, which is out today. So make sure you go and get yourself a copy of that. Hello, everyone listening. Welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Today, I am absolutely thrilled because we have a friend of me, a friend of the podcast, a friend of you, the listener, uh, Nikesh Shukla on the podcast today. Hello. Hi. How are you? Uh, uh, that was too I'm quick an intro. Of, well, I'm also oh, a yeah. friend of Robin as well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I okay, feel wait. like I'm, I'm today, doing very much a Hitchcockian Robin cameo in this one. The moment, <laughs> this is why I don't <laughs> normally let I Josie do I the s- intro. <laughs> Yeah, I always do a bad job. No, it's no, not you do I, a bad job. I just suddenly, I just sit it out. But I that's was too enough. excited. <laughs> look, my wonderful friend, our wonderful friend. I said friend of the podcast. That's both of us. Friend of Robin. Friend to all. Close, close, close personal friend of Robin's <laughs> and acquaintance of Josie Long. 
See, I, I was thinking, <laughs> I, I was shocked to discover you, you have been a published author for 11 years now. And I think when I first met wow. you, your book, your first one was just about to come out because we met at Josie's stand-up gig, uh, I think for the first time yeah. in Camden. Yeah, God, that was so long ago. Um, yeah, it's it's really strange to think I've been doing this for 10 years because every time a new thing comes out, it feels like the first time you still feel terrified um and yours and you sort of think you will have learned to avoid all the bad habits don't go on goodreads <laughs> don't don't keyword search your name <laughs> anywhere uh uh don't all and all the rest of it don't go into bookshops and make a beeline for the tables to see if your book is on the tables just just accept that it's out it doesn't belong to you anymore but i think it must but, be very hard like i at least as a stand-up you get so much feedback from people in person and especially during the pandemic it, you don't get to connect with readers on a kind of tour of the book you don't get to do readings at bookshops or anything like that you are sort of i think it's very justified having the old search online because it's just so near and yet so far <clears throat> yeah i think I basically I distrust any author who says that they don't care about prizes. They they only publicly say they don't care. We we only publicly say we don't care about prizes when the prize lists come out and we're not on them. But yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of the the easiest validation you kind of get unless you sort of look. But the thing about Goodreads is and and Amazon is if you ever checked the one star reviews, it's a mixture of things things that you already know about your writing that could be better that keep you up at night Insa- insanity like uh, someone accidentally bought the audiobook of one of one of my books and not the kindle book and couldn't work out how to swap it round one star and someone else someone else re- uh, gave me a one star because it it w- didn't teach them enough about the british empire it was a family drama set after the British no, Empire. No, you know why Not that is? British Empire. Because of the algorithm, you were placed in uh, number one at one point in the chart, British Empire history. So somehow you will have found yourself <laughs> in a chart. Like we were talking about this the other day where, with, with Alan Davis, where, you know, I found myself in um, jokes and riddles, developmental psychology and film criticism, all, you know, all in the same day. Now, anyone wanting a lot, all, all for the for the same. For the... So, if you, that's the one bit that's the most <laughs> fun, I think, is finding out. And I talked to some publishers, and they're not involved because I thought, is this a publisher saying we can say it's this genre and this? It's not that. It is literally there's some strange algorithm which is many ways as possible to create as many charts. So I think that's what happened is they didn't they didn't read what your book was. They just went, well, this is number one in this is you know this is number one in medieval cookery history. I am going to buy this. <laughs> there's no medieval cookery in this. I, I suppose if you had such niche interests as medieval cookery history, you would have a Google alert set up for yeah. any yeah. Finally! Yeah. Another book about mead! <laughs> I'm, I'm sick of reading about two people falling in and out of love at prestigious Dublin colleges. It's so boring, but give me a book that mentions mead. There, there is a scene involving salting green ham, which is one of the most beautiful scenes of people eating green ham and vomiting while in love. That I, it, it, adorable. But your, I mean, that's what I, I this is what I do. Your, your new book, Brown Baby, it's fantastic. And it's, uh, we should get, I want to get straight into this actually, which is, it is one of those beautiful books where 
you are writing this specifically, you know, to your children. You, th- this is um, this is the first time you've kind of used this this way of, of, of talking directly to the reader as well, isn't it? Yeah, I, I experimented with with it a little bit in my essay for the Good Immigrant, where I I I won when I was when I decided I I was going to put an essay of my own into the Good Immigrant. I was trying to work out um, how to do it and also how to bring the reader in because I, I sort of realised that write a book about race and immigration it can kind of be quite you can sometimes feel a little bit scared of it as a prospect whether whether you are a person of colour or not um, and so I thought if I did an opening in an opening essay that addressed the reader um, then it might bring people in and I decided to write it to my daughters but also I'm a big fan of the tradition of um, people like ta Coates and James Baldwin and David Shariandri and Ali Wong writing these really wonderful pieces of literature that are addressed to their kids but they're ultimately addressed to the reader because I don't if I raise my kids well it, this is a book they probably never will never need to read yeah they'll already have all this because you're yeah. the, they're lucky because they've got you as their father so the people reading it are getting what you would be giving them yeah um, you're a, you're a character in 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 the book I know. also really <laughs> I know, but I do, and uh, we have spoken about this before, I do take issue because it was me asking a very needy question at a time I did not know was not a good time for you. And so I feel like I'm a villain of the piece. <laughs> but yeah, so I, 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 I'll, for, for people listening who've not yet read the book, it is um, a memoir about uh, bringing children into the world and all of the questions you're asking yourself about what you'd... Uh, what you hope for them and what you worry about for them um but also when i was sort of rereading it this morning uh, and looking over it i feel as well there's so much in it that's an autobiography and so much in it that's like it's just so much more than that i suppose it feels to me so broad and um so like funny and fun as well as top uh, covering these topics that are really sort of beautiful and deep and often very sad um so that's telling the reader about it um I do have big problems when I'm interviewing people I like about things I like because all I actually want to do is just compliment them as opposed to <laughs> ask them questions and, um, and you know me well enough to know that I do not do I do not respond well to compliments no, one star miss- reviews on Amazon <laughs> that is that is what I respond and also to. With the one-star reviews, that is where I would be most tempted to be like that guy who runs a restaurant who replies to them all and was like, never come back to my restaurant, fuck you. <laughs> so I would want to reply to them all like, no, it's you who is wrong. Good day. <laughs> um, Do you, that's, yeah, it's a really sorry. big book, I think, and it's so broad-ranging. And like, how did that unfold for you? Because I know it started out with some of your columns that you wrote for The Observer, but how did you find the process of writing it? And like, because yeah to me it's so deep and so broad it's it's not even just about having a child it's about life and your life yeah i i think i'd read a bunch of memoirs that weren't linear and mm. i thought that was a much more interesting way of approaching it i think roxanne gay's hunger is a really amazing memoir about about food and trauma and it's not linear and each each chapter could be
be taken as a as a standalone self-contained essay about whatever thematically she's dealing with and and each each of those essays has has a spine to it and when i when i was approached to by the the amazing editor carol tonkinson about whether there was a book in some of those columns that i'd written for the observer part of me was like dude i'm 38 like i don't (laughs) memoir i'm like i haven't lived and and also my initial reaction was my our parenting journey isn't special like nothing out of the ordinary happened but then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that actually my job as a writer is to find the extraordinary in the ordinary to find the small moments of grace in the seemingly mundane and where when I started to kind of draw parallels between uh my life as a parent and my mum's own life I, I kind of realized that the, the the thematic strand that links it all together is time because in that way that grief flattens time for you in that my mum has been dead for, for a day and 10 years and three months and four years all at once mm-hmm. being a parent my kid is a day old and an hour old and a year old and 10 years old all at once and that that flattening of time I thought was really interesting and it allowed me to then turn the book into a series of conversations a series of like fractured self-contained conversations you can read each of those things in isolation in the same way that you might read something like Roxane Gay's Hunger and that made it much easier to approach because I the other thing was I didn't want to write something that was like intellectual gymnastics I just wanted I wanted to put myself on the page I really wanted to bleed on the page and put my soul there and because um, otherwise there's no point ad- addressing my daughters in that way mm. that um, to me <clears throat> that's something I wanted to pick up on as well because it really feels like as a book it's like the the best of one's heart you know it, it, it's so uh, it's aspirational in terms of what it wants morally for your daughters but also it's so loving and like that obviously you've written fiction which is you know still beautiful and deep and loving and stuff but that to me feels like such a vulnerable thing to be doing and what did it feel like that kind of undertaking when you were writing like did it feel that intense as you were writing it yeah definitely because I wanted it to be a hopeful book and I do think it's an optimistic and joyful book is it is about finding joy in bleak times and but in order to write it well I kind of I had to dig deep so um my mum died the week before my first novel came out and I never really dealt with her death because I kind of decided at the time to distract myself and kind of um let my ego fly with like promoting my novel and stuff and I don't really feel like I started to grieve her probably until I had a kid and then when I was writing the memoir I kind of had to conjure her again in my mind to be able to write about her to then have her die to then grieve for her properly and then that give me the necessary sort of distance in order to to put it all on the page and so it was really painful to write um but I'm almost you know a week before publication I know this is sort of coming out on the day that the book's out please go and buy it uh the it's good to feel like there was a really positive outcome out of writing it which was I do feel like I've now grieved for my mum even though it was like eight years after I should have done well, well did was she present when you can 
sorry, I was, I was going to say was was I, I was thinking of the voices that you might have been listening to as you were writing this. The, the you know the, not, not the big audience, the family audience. That bit with whether you were seeing you know your future daughter there, kind of going, oh, dad, that's you've expressed this so badly for the world that we live in now, and also hearing the voice of your mother as well. I wondered how present. You, both your daughter and your mother were in in your head as as you wrote this actually as as commentators yeah they they were they were both very yeah they were both very present i mean my my daughter much more much more in the in the world because you know she's an active participant in the book a lot of the a lot of the freakouts i have in the book are because of conversations i've had with her where you know she innocently asks me to to look up some pictures of giraffes on the internet and then the, I find out that giraffes are now endangered because of climate catastrophe and <laughs> then freak out. Um, and my, you know, with, with my mum, the, the stuff that I, the stuff that I was trying to work through about um, how, how parents show love in different ways is interesting. When I was a teenager, I thought my parents had no emotional interest in me or my sister. I thought they were just were there to work, and we were there to work, and that's all anyone was there to do. And that just sort of felt very joyless for for me. And I'd like look at my friends, and you know, their parents would be taking them to Star Trek conventions, and they would be doing cosplay, and they'd all like um, watch art house European movies on Saturdays, oh. and they have dinner and debate them. And I I was pretty fucking jealous <laughs> of that as a kid. Uh, because I, I saw I saw my mum at the end of the day and it was very much a what have you achieved today kind of conversation and then my dad would just be silent and I didn't really appreciate at the time what they were going through and I think that is the weird thing about you don't realise until you become a parent that your parents were also people mm. <laughs> you know I'm still Nikesh I still have you know my own anxieties and hopes and dreams and uh, things that really irritate me and things that give me joy and and all the rest of it that are separate from my my kids but you know when when you look at your parents growing up you just see them as mum or dad they have no other identity and that is a really hard thing to understand until you've become a parent yourself i think well what's like in like interesting about this book is you can then imagine your daughter finding out things about you reading this book as an adult which is sort of very beautiful like that that's that could happen for her through this book because it was happening for you as well yeah i'm i can't wait for her to read the chapter about me potentially having an eating disorder <laughs> oh yeah to be fair like <laughs> buckle in <laughs> you want to know about me <laughs> i'll tell you i'll tell you about me that's I, an I, interesting I, thing i was going to say that that bit because that's i I found that one of the questions I can't remember who I was being interviewed by when I bought the book that I did ages ago. I'm a joke. There's a bit where I talk about um, uh, suicidal ideation and and ideas like that. And the journalist did say, you know, what do you think when your son reads about that? And it's an interesting question, isn't it, where you go? Because I think from what you're saying about your parent, that that bit of love might always be there, but it's not necessarily expressed. And it's uh, and and so we are of a generation that is now getting used to the fact that we probably tell our children that we love them far more than was ever said to us, and we hug them and we have a, a relationship which I think is very. But you still have that nagging voice that says no everything is inside everything do not reveal that and i think that's an yeah. uh, hopefully something that they will will feel less that that 
terrible battle, I think, which is one of the huge problems of, of being human, which is the disparity between what might be inside your head and what you feel you are allowed to express on the outside. Yeah, definitely. God, I the amount I tell my children I love them, they'll probably have such a false sense of security. I probably <laughs> need to I probably need to shit them up a little bit. I got just... told by a babysitter that I cuddled and kissed my daughter too much. And I was a bit like, uh, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> Do I, I want to talk as well about humour in the book because there's so many jokes in it. And like, uh, what is your attitude to writing? Because like, all, in fact, all your books have lots of fun and humour in them as well. And like, is it something that you just feel like, in my life I make jokes, life is all so funny? Or is it something that you specifically think about how much you'd like to put in? Or like, how do you approach writing f- funny stuff? Well... I think so much so much of the work is so thematically sincere that the worst thing I could do would be to treat it sincerely <laughs> and um and also I know that the best way to deliver emotional punch is to make it funny uh, yeah. or to sort of undercut an emotional punch is to end on a joke but then I'm a big studier of humor like you know I, I hang out and chat to a lot of stand-ups and you know I've done projects trying to understand humor and you know obviously Robin's book is like amazing on 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 all of this stuff because I just think that with you know if if you employ humor you, you kind of have the ability to interrogate much more complex things because humor can drive you to um interesting spaces mm. where um sort of attacking something logically and pragmatically and sincerely might make it a bit boring you know ultimately you want to keep your readers engaged and one way to keep them engaged is to do something surprising and and also like mo i think the stuff that i love watching and listening to and reading is stuff that is comedic and dramatic in equal measure mm-hmm. i don't i almost don't want to watch something that's overly dramatic and i also really don't personally love like the one-liner comedian type thing where it's just one line one line like I love a story and a story in order for it to be dramatic and comedic like in order for it to work for me it needs to be dramatic and comedic in an equal measure mm. basically I'm just ripping off all of your all of your tricks guys <laughs> oh it's in print and, you've, and we've brought you onto this podcast <laughs> excuse me Joe it's see I've already put seen us out of business you've just nicked it off this bloke in this book he does jokes too <laughs> oh no but can I he's got a like... wry take on life oh I didn't know there was only space for one wry take on life but like for example I just find like okay so the final chapter of this and like so much of it relates, I think, to a um, a morality or like a political moral uh, framework that I think I really like adhere to, want to adhere to, like really see and go, yes, please. But like, you know, you've got um, you've got a chapter that's about personal and civic responsibility and about trying to make that joyful and and wonderful, which is is so good. And then the last chapter is just a reference to uh, a whole new world by um, <laughs> from the Disney film. And yeah, it's still so kind of beautiful and also like so apt. You know, you want the world to be shining, shimmering, and splendid. And I think that sort of tonal playfulness is so deft within it like the fact that you can put in silly 
contemporary pop references into something that is like a heart oh, mate, song. I, I am one of the things I'm most excited about with this book is I managed to uh, smuggle in two really pointless Marvel references into the end of the book <laughs> that uh, that make me laugh because um, I, I just yeah I'm a big fan of like the mid the mid credits mid end credits sting oh, and the yeah. post credits surprise and so I put I put them into the book for no reason other than it made me laugh and then like um, I I decided I was going to do it and then I had to work out what I was actually going to do in it so like I decided I was going to do it before I knew what I was, what I was going to write that I wanted a mid credit sting and a post credits like surprise and it was really stupid but it makes me laugh well that's good in a way but as well because the book is like you're writing in some ways a stand-up show and you're writing a film, you know, free of charge additionally to the book. Yeah. Extra stuff. <laughs> I wanted to just quickly mention the humour thing because we were talking about humour. Um, mm. When we... Uh, and I think the very positive side there of engaging people. But I wanted to, in the book, you talk a little bit about um, what happened to Leslie Jones with the, the, the Ghostbusters movie and the guy who uh, basically set up an enormous amount of, 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 of racist trolling. And allegedly, allegedly, I had to put the word in allegedly. Right. I just said the guy because I don't even want to mention his name. I, th- I, th- I think people like that are much the same as those people, you know, th- that that rule that let's stop celebrating those who go on shootings and all of those other things. Let's not give, let's not even give them a name. And uh, so, yeah, some guy who allegedly, my God, that couldn't be more. We can definitely legally get out of that. <laughs> the, um, but it is. Um, but, Some but, fucking guy. <laughs> oh, now you've made it more specific. You've narrowed oh, it down sorry. by making it some fucking guy. Um, but it is. Uh, but that is one of the things that I find on the other side of humour. Where and, and I'm sure you have faced this a lot of times. You, you talk, for instance, about the, an advert in China. I think where it's it's a, it's a washing powder advert where there is basically uh, a guy who's black is placed in a washing machine and then he comes out and uh, I, I think is he kind of more Asian looking I can't remember and it's and as I read that I thought yeah. I bet there'll be people when people started complaining about that they go hey guys it's just a joke and I'm sure you've had that as well sometimes when you've been pointing out that sometimes a joke is more than just a joke when you're always the butt of that joke and I just wondered about your as we've seen humour increasingly used as a kind of rather, you know, extremely ugly Trojan horse to actually put in quite, you know, barbarous, uh, vicious and dogmatic statements. You know, how, how has that changed your, your relationship with how you are sometimes able to, to bring up these issues and deal with them? So yesterday I was walking my kids to, to nursery and one of them was goading the other. She was taunting the other. And the younger one was getting a bit upset about it and I asked the older one to stop and she she just looked at me and said why it's really funny and I said your sister is not finding it funny and she said but I'm finding it funny and I said yes sometimes the things that we find funny other people might not find funny and they might feel like you're actually you're being hurtful towards them and I and I said is that has there ever been a time where I've made a joke about you and you've not liked it and I, she said yes sometimes when you do really loud farts you blame me and I really don't like it and I said yes and what do you what do I say when you point that out she said oh you say sorry and I go yeah because 
because sometimes when we think something is funny we don't understand the power that it has on other people and if someone points out to us that um it holds a particular power over us we have to make a decision about whether that joke this is the right person for that joke this is the right audience for that joke or whether actually i should look at that joke and think about doing something different with it do you want all of your jokes to be about making fun of someone who doesn't quite have the power to make fun of you back and she was like no and i thought bloody hell i wish i could have put this conversation on the internet because this is exactly the encapsulation of all of this stuff but also what's frustrating is if a five-year-old can understand that why can grown (laughs) fucking adults not understand it well i i just i feel like so much of it is like this sort of weird defensiveness that people have when someone says i don't think that's I don't think that's funny or I think that is offensive in a way that you might not have recognised or actually I think there is something here that we need to, to look at. Like, my immediate reaction to all of those things is fuck you, I'm the writer, I'm in control of everything, I'm brilliant. Like, my, my immediate reaction is to go, oh, I'm a curious person and I'm a person who has said, said and done a lot of things that I probably wouldn't do again but and but I've been lucky enough that enough people have pointed out where I've got stuff wrong and I've looked at it and gone yeah maybe I shouldn't do that again what what did I do wrong or what did I you know how how was that what you know you you know what I'm trying to say and I just I'm not saying I'm perfect I'm not saying perfect but I just feel like so much of so much of my learning over the last three or four years has been about just being comfortable being uncomfortable when I get something wrong and I what I don't understand is that you know there's 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 this idea that funny is funny right um I've heard Seinfeld say this a couple mm. of times funny is funny I don't care who what you look like what color you are funny is funny is what he says and I don't understand that because I don't find Mr Bean funny but I think I know Blackadder is one of the funniest things I've ever seen, but then I think Blackadder is one of the funniest things I've ever seen because when I was like 13 or 14, I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen and I've not seen it since. It's so much more complicated than funny is funny because what you've got going on there is you've got your own personal context in so... Like, Seinfeld is not going... I am a person who has a specific taste and I love that taste. He's conflating... I love comedy and I'm open to lots of types of comedy uh, with therefore my taste is what is objectively what's funny and I am aware, you know, it, it's just somebody. And I think it's very interesting that it comes from like a, an older white male stand up because I often look at stand up written by older men and I'll see that the way they speak is always so much more objective than when I see younger women in particular, just that that like binary. So like often I'll see stand up and people will be like, we don't do this though, do we? We all do this, you know, whereas I'd be like, I did this one thing and do you know, I wasn't really sure about it, but the way I feel about this, you know, and, it, <laughs> and it's that sort of absolute confidence that they're moving from the personal to the everything. And yeah. maybe sort of, I think linked in with that, the terrifying fear that that isn't actually the case. And the refusal yeah. to accept that that isn't the case. 
is all linked in with these things. It's like, no, 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 I'm allowed to do this because I have supreme objective knowledge. And then on top of that, yeah, like not even wanting to go, I'm a person. And I had this wonderful experience when I was a kid watching like Mort Saal or whatever. And it, it meant so much to me. So maybe I'm seeing it through those rose tinted glasses when I as a 50 year old man watch Mort Saal. It's like not wanting to delve. It's yeah. not wanting to do any self-examination. And there, there is only one everyman and his name is Tom Hanks. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> and we were all sad when we all got coronavirus but it was <laughs> <laughs> um yeah yeah that's interesting i suppose he seems good natured and curious doesn't he yeah what well, like curiosity and like willing to like admit you're ad- willing to admit that like maybe the way you've de- like deployed or executed something wasn't quite right mm. is like it's really important like in the first chapter of my first novel i have two two friends in there who have just turned 30 arrive at the main character who has just turned 30's house and um they all immediately slip into how they were when they were teenagers and one of them refers to the other one as a bit gay and the point i was trying to make was it's so annoying when men get together and they kind of deploy these sort of teenage insults at each other that are actually really offensive but i didn't in the text like push back on it enough i just sort of let it sit there and a bunch of people you know said that that felt homophobic to them and my response was yes it was it was one character being homophobic to the other and maybe i should have had the other character kind of react in a in a way but it just sort of meant that i'd kind of not executed that as well as i thought i had years later and and that's okay. Like I have to own it. I wrote it, and if I had the chance to rewrite it, I'd do it again and make it explicitly clear that I, the author, am not don't don't condone the use of the use of the word gay as pejorative. But I do think men do it, and it's awful. Um, yeah, that's a hard thing, I think, and something that a lot of people haven't quite and, and like like myself included worked out how to write things and say this thing is bad without still conjuring some version of that thing that's mm. still there, you know? But I think there's, you... a, there's an issue there, which is we, you know, it is important to think, hang on a minute, what do these words mean? I think, you know, and um, um, what do these... But I think also sometimes, because we see such speedy reaction, sometimes the audience also, whether it's on Twitter or whatever, have to think, hang on a minute, I wonder what this intention... I, th- I think it's two ways... And I think that it needs to be thought about that both that on both sides, in terms of you need to go. Hang on a minute. I wonder what that that intention might have been. And I think that's the the problem we get is when both sides, because of the moment, as we know, the, the the moment. And when I say both sides, there obviously I'm talking very broadly in all manner, any different kind of uh, you know moment of conflict. The moment we start a conflict, we immediately have to believe even more certainly that we are right, and therefore we get nowhere. Because both sides mm. have decided the other person is evil, their intention was evil, they are wrong, and I am right. And I think it's in, in that relationship with words, I think we both sides have to think, like, hang on a minute, let me pause. Just as you pause when you're writing, sometimes when someone's reading thinks, hang on a minute, this seems a bit... Let me just think about what the intentions might have been. 
Yeah, I I, I know what you're saying. I, I think, I think, some sometimes, one of the things that I I wish I did was spend when I'm making stuff. Like I wish I spent less time on Twitter because I think the best writing I do is where I have a thought and I let it sit and I let it sit and I try to see it from all, all different angles and I try and interrogate it and I might read stuff about it I might um I might um you know research it and all the rest of it but I think my my issue with the way stuff gets talked about on social media is that it's it's immediately posited as like two extremes you can never have a complicated discussion about things and i think it kind of feeds into that kind of six form debate club mm. in like quasi-intellectual um space where like you know i was invited i was invited to do uh, a panel for like the battle for ideas that kind of mm. thingy um and it like the the subject was something like is decolonizing the curriculum radicalizing people or something like that it was something absurdly like binary mm. <clears throat> and i said i kind of find the thesis a bit offensive i, I you know I, i'm much more up for a more complicated conversation but mm. the thesis itself is just absurd and, and kind of offensive and sorry and the reaction of um the person running it um who is a uh, you know ran for the brexit party and is now in the house of lords but uh, who shall not be named um their reply was, well, I'm sorry that you were offended, but offence is subjective. And that was their response. And I was just like, well, how are we going to have, com- how are we going to have complicated conversations about things if I don't want to take part in the binary mm-hmm. is racism bad version Daddy, of the conversation? Oh, like oh, hello. I've been invaded. Yeah, there's that Noam Chomsky quote about, um, so there's a quote. What's the quote? The smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow a very lively debate within that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's the same sort of thing with, um, I think, conversations around empire. You know, we we can't ever have an honest conversation about the british empire or a complex conversation about the british empire because we're still stuck on was it really that bad mm-hmm. it did did didn't it do some good aren't you thankful for the railways we ended slavery we started it but <laughs> we don't mention that bit um but similarly i was thinking about the roads must fall campaign and i loved watching all the videos that different people have made it was so interesting so informative so full in its scope and the way it was reported was there's a statue why do they care so much about the statue you know and it's like bringing things down to something that is small and not the heart of it and then endlessly going on and on about that as a way to avoid the depth of things yeah yeah and and i think it kind of it kind of speaks to um what i just don't want to get involved in anymore like i don't want to be quote tweeting these fuckers on twitter and like trying to dunk on each other because it takes up it takes up so much time there's that brilliant quote from tony morrison where she talks about 
the the function the very serious function of racism is to distract you it mm. keeps you from doing the work that you're meant to be doing there'll always be one more thing and one more thing and one more thing it's a, it's a much richer quote than that but it's you know something along that those lines and you know if if we are to write books and and write intelligent stand-up that's going to move people and make people laugh and make amazing tv shows and brilliant informative radio shows then the thing that I don't want to do is be in like social media bum fights. It's just not something I want to give my time to. If they worked, we'd have a Labour government and these, <laughs> um, these grifters wouldn't have a platform anymore. If that worked, it's been 10 years or, you know, 12 years. Twitter's been a long time. If it worked, it would have worked by now and it hasn't. So I think some of us that maybe were drawn into it and were, you know, allowed it to take up our precious time thinking as we did at the time that it might be helpful in some way have learned that lesson you know we've learned it enough times <laughs> we don't need to learn it anymore we're busy it's not right and yeah, um, yeah I, I, and I think as well like like you're saying depth of thinking depth of writing does not come from that kind of pace and style of app like Robin you always talk about that about how there are certain things that people seem desperate to debate on Twitter as if like writing quickly 140 or 280 characters or whatever is ever going to be the best way to get your points across. People hate it when because there's most things I don't debate. I, I, even now actually says I don't debate things here. This is not a medium that was made for debating. And that's what fascinates me actually is, as mm. you know, everyone here has been drawn in. But what fascinates me is how many, sometimes very high up academics, for instance, you go, what are you doing? When you've been, you know, you've been teaching the history of philosophy and you realise the limitations of even the biggest, you know, collection of kind of platonic dialogues. And you've suddenly gone, but I imagine we can sort this out in 280 characters. It's human nature, you know, I know what I should eat. And most of the time I don't eat what I should eat. I know what my body needs. And most of the time my body does not get what it needs. I, I mean, the thing that I'm, try making sure i do before i go to bed at the moment given this is a books podcast is uh, i i read a little bit more of george saunders's book on short stories that's what writing, i'm doing which is it's like hanging out with an old friend it's it's glorious yes. it's so glorious and and wonderful and easy to read and it doesn't make me feel stupid for having never read any of those short stories yes and don't you feel that i mean and I'm calling myself a writer with much less cause to be able to do so. But as a writer, I'm finding it so nourishing because he talks to you as a writer reading it and he talks about what it means to write. And sometimes I feel like, yeah, I do that. I know that. And other times I feel like this light coming on that seems so at once so simple and also so advanced. I was thinking about this when you were talking about your first novel, in fact, where he talks about revisions and redrafting in the book. And... For me, I'm somebody that it takes so long to get one draft out that by the time I've finished a story, I'm like, that draft's worth about 10 drafts, actually. Same <laughs> with scripts. I'm like, um, yeah, first draft. It's not a first draft, you know. And I, I'm, I've always been like, fuck redrafting. But the way he frames it as you kind of in the Whitman, which he quotes as, you know, you are vast, you contain multitudes. And so if you come to something and redraft it or give it another look 70 times, you're allowing 70 different iterations of yourself to edit that work. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the sort of hard part. And it must be hard for you sort of as somebody who can't tour a show and tinker with it, you know, to, to say, OK, enough versions of me have seen this now. 
I let this go. Yeah, it's like, like it's that thing, like a novel. A book's never finished; it's only ever abandoned. Well, we. <laughs> I, I think we should. Wait, I, wait. I have one more thing I want to say, which is uh, that book did make me think of you as well because you are such a kind mentor to so many writers myself included like and also quite often in a book I love at the end it'll be like thank you to Nikesh Shukla without whom this book would not exist and I'm like he's done it again (laughs) and I feel like there's there's a whole network of writers and artists who you're secretly supporting and helping and I just want to acknowledge that and say how good it is not secretly it's very public I want them all to rave about how amazing I am because it makes me feel <laughs> you're creating about myself you're creating a, a, a sleeper cell of, of fans that are gonna break out but you want to be able yeah. to say it was wonderful to see us both in the Sunday Times top 10 list with me at oh. 2 and you at 7 yeah that's the important <laughs> thing isn't it well, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm building up this this cell and when Jonathan Franzen releases his next next book I'm going to activate them all to destroy, to, to, to destroy him <laughs> Well, we, I, I think one of the pieces of advice that isn't in the uh, your new book is uh, never miss a lunch date with your children when you've been on. And, and as mm-hmm. ten minutes in, just ten minutes ago, your daughter came in and said, "Will you be joining us for lunch?" I think that we should not deter that. Um, yeah, what you guys didn't see was that she had a tea towel draped over her forearm, like like a waiter wanting to lead us to our table. It was very cute. Oh, brilliant. So she, she, did, she didn't, but I would have loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and a little orders pad, like, and what will Sir be taking for luncheon today? Yeah, I, the next day I looked on TripAdvisor, and I'll tell you what, Nikesh gave his daughter's bolognese a very bad review. It was uh, yeah. <laughs> one star. Yeah. And to, which she replied, to which she replied, fuck off, never, never come again. Yeah. Before we finish, I want to ask, so uh, I know that you have another novel in the works, that you managed to write in the past year, which puts you as both a hero and a scab uh, to me (laughs) for having done so incredibly during the pandemic. But also, do you have any um, more kind of non-fiction books in your head at the moment that you're thinking of writing? Like, is there a kind of follow-up to Brown Baby that you're thinking about? Um, I'm writing a creative writing book at the moment, which is fun. Uh, to pretend I'm an expert, uh, but I guess I am. I'm just I'm, I'm undermining myself. Uh, no, I'm writing a creative writing book at the moment that will come out later on in the year, and I'm work. I and I wrote writing um, my next book for teenagers, which is all about young stand up called uh, Losey <laughs> Bobbin Rince. Bobbin Rince. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, it's about a young stand up. Um, I, I think that's all I can kind of say about it because yeah. we're still working it all out but yeah Brilliant, well thank you very much for uh, joining us uh, Brown Baby is out now and uh, we didn't probably talk about it almost enough, it's a really lovely book and I would say oh, it is it's uh, just so great and it is one of those lovely books which I, I, I think across the age groups people will enjoy reading it where, wherever mm-hmm. you may be in parenting or indeed uh, you know teenagers and all that, there's, there's so many interesting things in there Oh, thanks, Robin. Thanks, guys. No, I mean, it's probably best we didn't chat too much about it because you end up, like the George Saunders thing, you end up just saying the same sorts of things yeah. about about it when actually people would much rather like a f- wide-ranging chat with a bunch of friends rather than like do that sort of forced formality. So where did you get the idea for this book? <laughs> I know where the ideas come from. 
they come from the old ones who are an ancient creature that projects its foul satanic messages into the minds of writers. I've been watching a lot of John Carpenter movies recently. Um, that's that um, have you got any... Uh, I, last thing I know also... But you are a, a, a prolific reader and I want you to tell me, do you have any recent top, top tips uh, to share? Is this for you personally or is this for the podcast? Uh, for the podcast, but also for me. <laughs> don't, get me don't get me wrong. Um, two books that I really loved recently are Bolu Babalola's short story collection, Love and Colour, oh, and yeah. Nikita, Nikita Gill's The Girl and the Goddess. And they're both really joyful books. I also really liked Kevin Barry's new short story collection. Oh, we've got him coming on soon, so that's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the George Saunders book, Thanks so much for talking to us. I'm sorry it took me a while to start. It always does when it's a friend. I'm always a bit like, oh, hello. That's <laughs> no, 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 it's lovely. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to become a Patreon supporter. Or you can go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review five stars. That is also excellent. We are back next week with another new episode when our guest will most likely be, uh, I say most likely because I haven't got the schedule in front of me at the moment, so this is from memory, but I believe our guest will be an author who has topped the bestsellers list too many times to mention, Marion Keys. Until then, have a great week, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.